This is Misinfo Weekly, a somewhat weekly program about misinformation in our time. Misinfo Weekly is made by the Unit for Data Science and Analytics at Arizona State University Library. Today is September 25th, 2020, and today we're talking about some of the misinformation circulating around the recent wildfires on the West Coast in California and Oregon. And we have a guest with us today, Dr. Steve Corman, who's a professor of strategic communication in the Hugh Downs School of Human Communication at Arizona State University. He's also the director of the Center for Strategic Communication. Steve, you've been following this as, as we've been following this this week. What's that been like? It's been strange because a couple of weeks ago, I, I heard these rumors there, that there were dueling rumors that uh, both left-wing activists and right-wing activists had been starting the fires uh, in Oregon. And so there was an effort to track that down, but it didn't turn out exactly the way I thought. You had been tracking how there were rumors kind of spanning both sides of the political spectrum, where there are people who were alleging that actually there were other kinds of uh, extreme right organizations that might be responsible for the fires. Does that sum it up? That's correct. Uh, and the, the reason I was so interested in the, the sort of dueling rumors is that uh, we're doing a research project on Russian disinformation in Europe. Uh, and as although we're not looking at the United States, uh, as we all know, that's sort of the Russian modus operandi is to uh, sort of stir up uh, sentiment on both sides of emotional issues. So it seemed like this might be a tailor made case of uh, Russians ba basically playing both sides of a controversy. OK, and Sean, you've also been tracking some of the information online on a couple different platforms. What are what? What's the kind of high level view of some of the things that you've seen before we dive a little deeper? Sure. So uh, one of the things I've noticed over the past week or so is that the social media platforms are starting to remove some of this content related to the rumors that either Antifa or uh, or far right groups, militias are starting the fires. So the content over time is decreasing as the platforms remove it. But some of the initial posts are basically sort of equating you know, one of the fires was started via a gender reveal party, a party, and there's like this initial link between, well, it's a gender reveal party, so therefore that's uh, LGBTQA, that's Antifa, that's BLM, so therefore it's the Democrats, so therefore Antifa starting the, the fires, and this is sort of the genesis of the snowball as it starts to go downhill and gain some traction. Um, and then we found some other examples of how that gets picked up by you know, some of the far right media, and then that moves into the mainstream media over time. And then it starts to become what seems like a legitimate rumor, but it's not. So to sketch this out, then we have a rash of wildfires in the Western states. We have then the genesis of some rumors and social media posts that start to allege that it's not actually climate change that's causing these fires. It's actually Antifa or far left militias or activists or extremists who are starting these fires. And then as this progresses a little bit, we start to get some people suggesting that there are counter theories, that actually these fires are being started by uh, far right organizations like the Proud Boys or the Boogaloos. Amidst all of this, then we have a, uh, a kind of distortion field around this event so that it's difficult to, or more difficult, to ascribe causality to these fires. So uh, you, you may say, oh, well, it's been a very hot summer, it's been very dry, that may have something to do with climate change. A lot of these rumors now are, um, are suggesting that we can't 
trust that information that in fact something else is going on instead and it's it's on purpose and it's nefarious so let's think through uh what kinds of pieces of information are swirling around to create this distortion field um let's let's start off with the initial set of rumors that start to get people to think that actually these wildfires were started by far left anarchist radicals. Sean, what are you seeing in some of the data that you collected? Um, does it all start with a gender reveal party? The data that I'm able to collect now, it looks like it's, it's, it's a genesis is this gender reveal party. And then, cause there was a lot of coverage in the news of this gender reveal party. Although I don't think we actually know the gender of the baby at the end of the party, but um, <laughs> that information never really made it to the headlines, it seems. No, I mean, that was sort of after watching some of this, I was like, what's the gender of the baby? But that's not here nor there. Uh, it's probably it's, an ambiguous gender. <laughs> very Antifa-like. At least that's <laughs> right. what the accusation is in some of the data. So then that, that narrative starts to twist a bit as some of these uh, more conservative or far-right Facebook groups that I've been looking at, they're starting to twist that narrative towards, well gender reveal party this is in california and all of a sudden now there's this they're trying to create this one-to-one relationship between that gender reveal party and then say well that's something antifa was doing so antifa is starting these fires and steve you've been covering you know how narratives shape misinformation or that narratives are kind of these the bones of a lot of different specific incidents of misinformation for you know a good while now is that an effective equivalency to draw? How can you get away with doing something like that by saying gender reveal party equals Black Lives Matter equals Antifa? Why does that work or does it work at all? Boy, I'm just I'm a, a little bit baffled by the gender reveal party uh, aspect of that. But I mean, the rest of it, uh, you know, it's basically tapping into widely accepted uh, stories, at least in certain uh, political circles. Uh, and, you know, uh, everything Antifa does is bad. Uh, Black Black Lives Matter equals Antifa. They're all terrorists and anarchists. So, uh, you know, uh, of course they're setting fires. So it just it, it, it buys into a narrative rationality that's very common in certain political circles. And in, in that narrative rationality, what's the belief about what does Antifa want? Is it does it ever get specific? What is Antifa if? Antifa is the enemy. What are Antifa's objectives? Uh, Antifa's objectives are chaos followed by socialism, I think. You know, it's okay. the same kind of themes we hear out of uh, certain political candidates. So it's, it's kind of like the, the political equivalent of underpants gnomes from South Park. You know, step one, yeah. create chaos. Step two, step three, socialism. Perfect example. Okay. Or the forest animals, maybe. Yeah, maybe that too. Um, just as deadly, Sean, you had you had picked up on that. There's that photograph that had been circulating around Twitter and Facebook of the Antifa radicals with some cans of fuel kneeling in the forest. Can you talk a little bit about that image that you were tracking down? I like which image is this now? <laughs> there were so many. You know, I looked at commentary on one of them, and it said like, "Look, the red helmets." They're wearing red helmets, which means leaders. So we have three leaders out there in the woods lighting fires. Of course, I see. Um, so there's this image, I believe one you're referring to is this image of uh, actually a group of firefighters holding a, a, like an Antifa 
flag. So it says anti-fascist action. They have a couple chainsaws with them. And then on one of the firefighters back, there's a can, which I would argue is probably a water can, uh, but it's red. And so there's some accusations around that, that, you know, this can that the firefighters have on their back, that this is actually fuel and they're starting the fires. Yeah, there are a couple different versions of this image going around on Twitter or that went around on Twitter that we captured. And there's a red circle with an arrow pointing at this red can on, on someone's back saying, these are Antifa arsonists. When in fact, the original image was trying to say that here are some, you know, politically left firefighters. Really different interpretation. But it, it almost reminds me of, of the Wayfair conspiracy incident or other kinds of things where there's this participatory element to creating the misinformation. Like, see, I saw a canister on their back. It must be filled with fuel. You know, maybe they need fuel for their chainsaw, which is also in the foreground. And chainsaws are really important for firefight, right? And so if you don't know anything about this, then it's very easy to say, well, they just have a can of gas and they're going to start a fire that way. Yeah, there definitely seems to be this kind of where's Waldo um, QAnon edition flavor to what we're looking at. here. Well, and there's this issue similar to, you know, with Wayfair that until you prove this 100 percent beyond a shadow of a doubt false, that that's not gas that's being used to start the fires. I'm not going to believe that. So, like, how do you how do you disprove or contextualize this image for someone who basically doesn't want to believe? And in addition to that picture, there's a number of different tweets that started going around the 13th um, and 14th. One of them, uh, actually, it's the same text, but it's actually coming from different Twitter accounts. And what I mean by that is it's the exact same tweet, but normally you get that when somebody retweets somebody else. In this instance, you see multiple copies of the same tweet text show up as being originated from a handful of different Twitter accounts. The text of the tweet is remember or remembers misspelled that day that you said Antifa will be designated as a terrorist group question mark. WTF are you waiting for law and order all capitals triple exclamation point hashtag whiskey alpha Romeo. Uh, Steve, when you see something like that, what, where does your mind go when you see that kind of phenomenon and that kind of text? Oh, well, it's a, it's a dog whistle, right? It's, a, it's sort of a call to action. Uh, you, you know, you've seen these people causing uh, chaos uh, long enough. When are you going to man up and do something about it is kind of what, what the message says to me. And so it's no surprise that they've added the president's Twitter account. Um, multiple, when you see multiple parties uh, adding the president, with the exact same message, but they are not retweeting one another. What does that say to you? Well, it's a sort of a classic red flag of coordinated inauthentic behavior, right? It's, it's that somebody has written this tweet and distributed it to a bunch of people, perhaps uh, bots, uh, that are all posting it at the same time to gain more traction with the message. Yeah. And that last little bit about Whiskey Alpha Romeo, um, back to this idea of dog whistling. Uh, that we're, we're at war ties really nicely into this isn't only or exclusively a dog whistle to QAnon, but this is if you do want to dog whistle QAnon and talking about us being at war um, and that you need to be a soldier in this war, that's certainly an effective way to get at that kind of community as well. 
Well, sure. And not only QAnon, but the militia groups and the, you know, armed right wing groups and, and so forth. Yeah. There is a lot of information or misinformation or disinformation spreading around about the origin of the wildfires that alleges that the, the, the far political left <laughs> both exists um, and is at fault for these wildfires. Now, thinking, uh, you know, one of the things that caught your eyes, as you mentioned, is, you know, is there a both sides to this? When you were thinking through that problem, what did you find? Well, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, I really expected to find uh, more on the sort of right wing uh, version of the or uh, right wing culprit version of the story. Uh, and I started looking around and, you know, much to my surprise, I just didn't find very much. Uh, I went into Twitter. Uh, I could find uh, nothing about uh, Oregon and fire and Proud Boys or Boogaloo on Twitter. I did the same searches on Reddit. I didn't find anything there. Um, I uh, just doing a web search. I was able to find one article by an AP reporter named uh, Ali Swenson on September 10th, who said, uh, there were Facebook posts, some of which blamed far left Antifa activists and others that said the far right group, the Proud Boys, were responsible for the fires. Uh, so I went into Facebook and uh, did some searching around and only found one post uh, mentioning these rumors. And that was by State Representative uh, Julie Fahey, who is in a district representing uh, Eugene Bethel and Junction City, Oregon, on September 11th. And she uh, said, uh, as part of sort of a multi-threaded post, uh, fires are not being set by Antifa or Proud Boys, Trump supporters, communists, liberals, or Russians, all rumors I've heard in the last couple of days. These were basically the only references to far-right groups I was able to find, uh, which leaves me wondering, you know, where these uh, rumors came from and indeed, you know, how prevalent they were, I guess. I was able to find a few dozen tweets that tried to draw a line and that line may be made of red yarn on a cork board, but is trying to draw a line between the fires and Russian influence. Um, but, you know, there's no way it's at all symmetrical with what we were just talking about with some of the rumors about Antifa. Right. I mean, in a situation like this where you see somebody come out and say, hey, here's all these rumors. Uh, I've heard all of them but only one of them has a substantial online presence. You know, what do you make of something like that? Michael, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, uh, one possibility is what you mentioned earlier is that these things have been taken down by the social media uh, companies. Uh, but then that sort of begs the question of why more of the ones uh, blaming the uh, Antifa radicals weren't taken down as well. So it's really a bit of a mystery to me is where, where we got these reports. Uh, which, as I said, I heard at the time, but haven't been able to track down. Yeah, this puts us in a difficult situation, I think, uh, methodologically, meaning we are using Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms as information sources to make inferences about misinformation events, because oftentimes that is the misinformation event. It's not the only place you can have a misinformation event. Right. It's altogether possible that this could have been a word of mouth campaign and that it was very local. For instance, that it may be possible that people in the Northwest were talking about this, um, but they weren't. It never really made it to Twitter. Um, so that's that's a possibility. Hearing from you about this, I also wonder how much of it is a rhetorical move um, to make position all of these things as equivalent in the same, literally put them all in the same breath um, to create to achieve some kind of political end. That that's 
the, those are the two possibilities that I'm thinking of right now. Yeah, exactly. I kind of like that idea. You know, you could certainly imagine some, uh, if they're not, if not Antifa activists, some left wing uh, types saying, well, all these rumors are going around about us starting the fires. Let's start some about the right wing uh, starting the fires to sort of uh, equalize things a little bit. What's remarkable to me is still that there just is it never made it to Twitter. It never made it to Facebook. Um, and I don't know if that's because, or, you know, there's not really an easy way to know, I should say, if that's just the result of the nature of the rumor, that it was just a kind of grassroots thing that went person to person, or if it never really got enough legs to show up on social media, you know? So there's this question of, is its appearance on Twitter and Facebook evidence of the fact that it's gained a lot of traction and has kind of made it into social media? Or is it just some stuff only exists on social media, but there's plenty of other things to talk about? Right. Well, I mean, uh, it also leaks out into more mainstream sources, I, I guess you could say. So I, I believe you're the one that found the uh, RT article about the protesters starting fires. And, you know, if you go and look at that, it's just it's uh, full of images of fire and Antifa protesters. Right. So uh, trying trying to draw that connection. But here again, we don't see anything about right wing uh, participants. Yeah, Sean, you've got that article up right now. Right. So I think this is a, a second narrative that conflates the protests and the coverage of Antifa as radical protesters that are starting fires, that are fighting with the police. They combine that coverage plus some of the FBI documentation about confronting the rise in anti-Semitic domestic terrorism. So that actually that's circulating a lot in some of these comments, some FBI documents, plus some comments that the attorney general has made. And they make that jump between what's happening in the protests and the the coverage of the protests, which some of the coverage is, I think we can say bombastic in some ways. Yeah, it's our friends at RT again with some really high production video on their site, right? Yeah, you see this video of a, a protester you know, lighting a fire, then the protester actually lights themselves on fire accidentally. They're trying to put that fire out. It's very dramatic. And then there are a whole host of, of tweets that they embed in the story. And then that's getting a lot of a pretty wide circulation in some of these rumors. And then that gets combined with, uh, like, for example, Glenn Beck also covered the story in his show. And in the episode on the 14th of September, it actually seems like he's debunking the Antifa connection to the wildfires. That's sort of the first quarter of the, the his segment on Antifa and the wildfires. So he says the states have said Antifa is not starting the wildfires. There's a whole host of social media posts from sh local sheriff's offices, like just begging people to stop calling them about Antifa starting the wildfires because the rumors aren't true. And they you need to not expend resources on investigating these rumors versus dealing with the fires at hand. But then Glenn Buck does this whole turnabout and starts to, you know, well, the federal government, you know, the Justice Department saying this about Antifa, we have these questions. Then all of a sudden, he starts this line of questioning. Well, I just want you to have the information. This is just something to think about. Are we really sure? Does this really line up to basically sort of like widen this gap to then make it seem like this rumor is more legitimate than it is? So we are in a world where if a story is on RT or Russia Today, that is a mainstream outlet. And if Joe Rogan, whose podcast is, you know, circulated by Spotify, that's mainstream. And Glenn Beck, certainly, that's mainstream. So what we're seeing here then is an adoption of these rumors, and sometimes a correction, as we were talking about earlier, Sean, 
correction always travels a lot slower than the initial message, but we have these uh, messages uh, that are literally tying like fire is a brand it, it, it's, it's, they're trying to make that the brand of the political left, right? So RT, even the, the cover art for the Glenn Beck radio piece, or I'm sorry, I think it was like a video instead, but um, I associate him with radio. But, you know, fire is the brand. I think the uh, extreme right is trying to brand Antifa as fire and destruction. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, what's more fire and destruction than a wildfire? And what's more comfortable? So if we go back to sort of emotional feelings, uh, what we want to believe or do not want to believe, say, about climate change, if you don't want to believe climate change or strongly do not believe climate change, which is easier for you to kind of hit your horse to, that, you know, a gender reveal party by some liberals that are part of Antifa started a wildfire, or actually it's just really dang hot outside and this is the new climate change reality and we need to do something about it. If you don't want to believe that second part, then you have to, you know, go back to the first. Why is this believable? Because this seems relatively simple. Just show pictures of people with fire associated with it. And all of a sudden their fire is just their thing. Um, why would anyone believe that Antifa wants to burn down forests? Well, it's probably just the, uh, you know, sort of constant association of the two. So, you know, it's the same reason presidents try to wrap themselves in the flag and so forth, right? It's, it's uh, sort of, uh, an image-based argument where two things are constantly associated. And, you know, I, I think over time that just starts to build up an association in the brains of certain audience members uh, that link the two together. And that's kind of what's so pernicious about the RT article, you know, we've been talking about is that they're just image, image after image and videos associating Antifa with fires. And it says the police are asking protesters not to uh, start fires because there's a wildfire emergency. So it just sort of try, wraps everything up in the same package, right? That the protesters are creating anarchy. They're setting fires. There are forest fires too. The anarchists are probably responsible for those. We have to do something. Yeah. I mean, there's something elemental to this, right? Fire is literally entropy. Right. Um, and, you know, by, by casting Antifa as the kind of uh, socio-political equivalent of entropy, then they're both, you know, agents of chaos. And a lot of argument by insinuation, and this goes back to what you were talking about, Sean, with, uh, with some of the uh, rhetorical strategies of Glenn Beck, which is, I'm just a man asking questions, or this is just some information you should have without really standing behind those claims. Did you want to break down a little bit about some of those lines there or why you think it was such an effective insinuation, even if it wasn't a full-throated endorsement of some of these things? Well, I think it's fairly effective because it um, it legitimizes an argument that, that wouldn't be legitimate otherwise. So we can't really make a logical argument that we don't, you know, there's no evidence that Antifa is doing this. So instead, the, you know, this is something to think about you know, why would the government be saying this? Does this really explain everything? You know, the denials by the state government that Antifa is involved or the sheriff department that this is involved. And then Glenn Beck keeps asking this question, like, does this denial explain everything? If Antifa is not doing this, well, then who is? And so I think this legitimizes the questioning and sort of opens the door in a way that you can't if you try to make a logical argument because in reality, there isn't a logical argument because there's very little evidence at all for Antifa or 
far right wing group starting this. Yeah, and it, it obscures the possibility that nobody's doing it, that it's being started by lightning, right? Yeah, or, you know, the forest being, you know, as dry as tortilla chips. So insinuation seems like one way to make something appear to be true when you have no, like, rational argument for showing that it's true. But what are some other ways to make something true? Well, one way is if uh, authorities promote them. So to the extent that uh, Glenn Beck is an authority for uh, some people, his questioning could, uh, you know, lend a lot of legitimacy for, for those people. When people use a kind of insinuating or motif-based way of trying to associate people with bad ideas, that's another way of, of maybe making it uh, have more purchase in people's minds. And then when you accompany that with people who are trustworthy or prominent, um, those are all some of those contributing factors to make something that's not true feel true. And there's also this technique, uh, and I want to read an excerpt from the uh, Glenn Beck episode, or at least the the summary of it, is that, you know, well, is this really all sources? We want to consider all sources. He keeps repeating that throughout the episode. So the the intro to the episode is, who do we trust? Because while a police chief in Oregon and a leader in the U.S. Forestry Service said, there is no truth to the rumors that Antifa supporters started some of the wildfires in California and Oregon. Officials elsewhere are telling a different story. In fact, several people in both states have already been caught, arrested, and charged with attempts of arson. So we must pay attention to all, and all is in caps, all sources, because if not, we'll miss the truth. What do you get from that yet? Yeah. Well, and it turns out that's not true either, that people have been arrested for starting forest fires. Correct. So there's, but notice there's no sort of citation of evidence. And if you listen to the entire episode, there's actually zero citation of evidence for the claims that people have been um, arrested for starting fires. And it's very interesting that you would think the authority is your local police officials and the forestry service the file service fire service in Oregon, Cal Fire in California, they're all saying no and they're begging people just to stop stop repeating this. But this call at the end of, well, there are all these sources. There's another source. Or he's also basically pitting some of the federal government reports about protesters in, you know, Portland and in larger cities and pitting that against the wildfires as if they're on parody and they're not, they're not about right. the same thing. And as if all sources are equally credible too, right? I mean, just the fact that there are more sources isn't a reason that you should pay attention to those sources. Yeah. So we go back to this theme that we've talked about in many episodes of expertise. So, you know, I would consider Cal Fire, Oregon Fire, the U.S. Forestry Service, the actual firefighters, local sheriff's departments to be experts on what's happening right now as trusted sources of information. But there's this attempt to then say, well, there are these other sources I found online. I've seen social media posts and those are equivalent to the Forest Service. Right. Right. Um, You know, like the Forest Service just gets their information from Twitter and Facebook, too, right? Yeah, of course. Where else would they get it? not the actual firefighters and the work they're doing on the ground. Uh, but I think this technique is, you know, I think it's really important. Like what you're pointing out is that um, 
you know, not all sources are equal, not all sources are credible, but there's an attempt when there's a lack of evidence to start to say, well, we're not considering all sources, so we have to pause for a second. But this goes back to another thing that we point out, which is uh, another way to make something true that isn't necessarily true is point to a single piece of evidence and say, look, this person is caught in the, in the forest with a machete and gas and the police arrested them. And then using that as evidence for an entire Antifa conspiracy. Um, so that kind of using metonymical thinking, right, where part stands in for the whole is just a really, you know, just seems like it's widespread here where you can just, you know, take one newspaper clipping and say, see, this is the, the rest of my theory. You should definitely you should definitely trust me here that this is a vast conspiracy because one guy is caught in the woods with a machete. Right. It's 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 the sort of classic uh, uh, idea of that disinformation is most effective when there's a grain of truth yeah. around which a bigger narrative is built. Yeah. And you even see people using web archiving technology, Sean, um, you know, people who will take newspaper clippings and get them on web archive. They will share them on Twitter from the web archive, even though the story itself is still published on the newspaper. Um and there's this implication when you share it from a web archive that this has been deleted because no one wants you to know when, in fact, the story is it's still up. That's an interesting idea. I mean, I never I'm not sure whether the Internet Archive lends legitimacy in some groups, but I mean, maybe it does. Uh, you would think. Well, this is archive.is. That's a similar service to the Internet Archive. Um, it's not as large, but it's a, another web archiving tool. Uh, where people curate more of their own personal collections rather than the Internet Archive curates larger portions of the web. Okay, yeah, but a very interesting rhetorical move to link something in your personal archive versus... So when we take into consideration the total kind of distortion surrounding these events, we have this catastrophe going on across multiple states. We have competing rumors about which Antifa people did what where, we see it actually enter the mainstream and start to get attention in that. What does that do? What's the kind of long-term or even short-term effect of this kind of distortion field? I guess you could say one effect of the distortion field is to uh, uh, distract attention away from what's probably the real problem, i.e. in this case, climate change, drying out forests, uh, uh, preventing rain that would keep forest fires from spreading uh, and so forth. So as long as you think uh, that's not really the process behind it, and instead it's these evil people with an evil ideology, so evil that it causes them to go out and set forest fires, then that's what we should really be paying attention to, right? Not the, not the facts about uh, what's the, the, the most likely cause. Yeah, I, I feel like it would be very, you know, forest fires require money and resources to to be mitigated and it feels like it's much harder to make any kinds of decisions or get any kind of consensus um, or close to consensus about you know resourcing uh the the mitigation of fires when there's all of these rumors swirling that it might it might actually be somebody's fault you know a big conversation that's emerging is you know this forest fire management policy who funds it Who's responsible? Because, you know, in California, the vast majority of forest lands are managed by the federal government and not the state of California. So there's a difference in policy. How do you harmonize that? So this impacts the conversation. You know, what confidence do you have in, you know, Cal Fire, the BLM, the National Park Service to manage these fires? And 
what do we want to fund versus, well, this is a police issue where we need to militarize the police more so that they can get rid of these Antifa arsonists. Yeah, it, it entices or uh, even demands a military response instead of a policy response. And the military response, I would say, is more of kind of a more simple, straightforward response versus this much more complicated, probably going to be much more inconvenient because this requires a whole host of policy changes throughout our whole policy ecosystem to address climate change and forest fires versus, well, if we just arrest the right people, this is going to go away and not come back next year. Yeah, great, great point. All of a sudden, we're starting to, this is starting to remind us of what we saw with the Oroville Dam misinformation that we talked about a little while ago, where the dam is completely overloaded, hundreds of thousands of people are in danger, and people are taking to Twitter to blame illegal immigrants for the lack of infrastructure funding for the dam, which doesn't help anybody. Um, and again, lives or kind of creates this uh, equation where if you just eliminate the bad people or the people you don't like, then all of a sudden that somehow fixes the problem or makes everything right again. So all this puts me in mind of this topic I brought up earlier, which is narrative rationality. Uh, and the important thing about narrative rationality is that it doesn't have to be logical. It just has to be coherent, uh, sort of on its own terms. Uh, and it also has to sort of resonate with other stories that you have heard and believe to be true. And uh, kind of one thing we've been doing a lot of research on is how these narratives can form systems. And so, you know, elements of one narrative can lend credibility to uh, uh, elements of another narrative. And so these things sort of become wrapped up together. Right. So the, the you know, it's what we were talking about before. Uh, there's this evil anarchist force called Antifa. They're doing all of these bad things. They're starting fires. Well, it makes perfect sense then that they would go out and start forest fires. So obviously that's what, what that's what's happening. And that in turn uh, uh, validates this other narrative that we need more law enforcement to track down these narrative people and put them in jail. And that will be good because if we build up law enforcement in jails, they'll be we'll be able to put more illegal immigrants in there. So the, these things start becoming uh, wrapped together in a big sort of network of actors and events and and motives and so forth. Yeah, like in uh, in systems theory, it would be autopoiesis, right? This idea exactly. that your, your system is just going to be it's, it's so uh, it's so well developed that it can basically just spin out its own structures and reproduce itself. Right. So the, so the, 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 the narrative system becomes generative in a sense, right? So it provides structures that you can hook into to craft different narrative trajectories that sort of support a common idea. And before you know it, you're on the Wayfair website, Googling the names of, you know, uh, buffet <laughs> furniture, uh, doing your own research. And you just, it's easy for someone to see something in random data and, you know, when you take that uh, into narrative, it's easy for people when they're emotionally invested in the outcome to be able to just cherry pick ideas or things that they observe and turn that into a narrative and start participating in that system that you mentioned. Right. And especially when there's a narrative substructure there, they can draw on and sort of slot things into. Mm. So there's I saw a great example of this this week, and I know I sent it to you, Michael. Uh, Steve, I'm sorry, I haven't sent it to you yet. I don't know if you saw there's a a TikTok fireman who from Hawaii who went viral this week and actually jumped from TikTok to the mainstream media. And he was duetting, which is this practice where someone makes a TikTok video and then 
another user can then sort of play that video and sort of speak over it and uh, respond to it. And so he was duetting a video that showed the U.S. wildfire map. And this other TikTok user was saying, well, we really want to think about this. It's very weird. Do you notice that all of the fires on this map, the fires somehow know where the borders of the countries are? And notice the fires don't go into Canada. Yeah, they, like stop, they, just, Canada. they stop at the border. <laughs> like, like the Customs and Border Patrol, that's the solution to our problem. They just stop at the border and Customs is like, you don't have a passport, so you can't come in. Yeah. And, or a wall, maybe a wall would do it too. <laughs> but... You know, so this fireman then duets this and says, well, of course, the the fires stop at the border because this is a U.S. fire map and the United States doesn't chart the fires in Canada or in Mexico. It's only in the United States. And he went viral for this. And he's been, you know, so then this user who created the initial rumors on TikTok, then they sort of she keeps producing rumors and he keeps continually, you know, duetting them and, and trying to to rebut them and he's become famous for this. So I think this is just another example of, you know, saying, well, these fires are actually false and man-made and look, they don't go into Canada. So something is fishy here. And yeah. it's this sort of perverse logic. Cause at first, if you see this, I showed this to my students in my class this week. And at first my students stopped and they're like, well, well, why do they stop at the border? That's crazy. That's wild. What's going on? Cause at first you get drawn into this. What a compelling like, pattern. Yeah. Whoa, like what's the magic of the border? Are there sprinklers on the border? Like what's happening? And then I said, well, you realize, think about who produces this map. And my students are like, well, it's the US government. And I was like, well, would the US government map out fires in Canada? And they're like, oh, that makes so much sense. Or as the firefighter you know, says, well, Canada probably has a different forestry management policy than the US. And also it's up north, so it's not as dry. Like here's a picture of a heat map of the United States of you know, the weather that's happening and notice, see the fires, see where the temperatures are really high, see where there hasn't been any rain. Look at Canada. It's cooler. There's been rain. So, uh, but at first there's this sort of compelling argument where you look at this map and you're like, this visualization, you're like, whoa, it stops. Oh my God. Right. Uh, yeah. But We're just but, asking questions. Just asking questions. That's right. I just want to consider all sources and all possibilities. When you look at the when you look at, an, at at what we call a natural disaster, right? Um, we it's always uh, a kind of tragic labeling of these things as natural disasters because, right? The history of of how human beings have lived with events like this always indicates that there are inevitable human components uh, to how these events impact human populations, right? So management and response and resilience are always part of this story. I think it's also the argument you're making is fairly complex. There's these interlocking systems that we really can't pull apart. And so that takes a lot of breath to explain. And sure. it's much easier to say Antifa starting these fires, done. Here's our solution, done. Now let's walk away. Yeah. So where do we, what do we take away from something like this? The fires haven't gone away, but what can we learn from this misinformation event as it continues to be you know, ongoing? Well, one, one, one thing is it seems to me like, uh, you know, uh, ideologues or disinformers or misinformers miss no opportunity to seize on a tragedy to sort of advance their own uh, ideological interests. I mean, it, 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 it seems like there's opportunism here to me. 
I also think it's important to beware of these tactics. So beware of of people who only ask questions but don't provide any evidence or concrete information. They're just you know, or they don't vet their sources and they treat everything as equivalent. So these almost end up being in a form kind of like a sinkhole that just sort of basically sucks out your foundation and then you can fall into this trap of mis and disinformation. They're not just trying to be like literary theory professors from the 1980s, you're saying, by only asking questions? <laughs> no, it's not my classroom where I just, my students ask a question and then I ask them a question back and they roll their eyes at me. But um, that's a different, that's a different Socratic technique. This is not what like Glenn Beck was doing, for example, where, you know, all sources matter, all sources are equal. And, and you just, you know, you just have to keep asking questions. But at some point you have to sit down and stop and say, well, are these legitimate questions? Who are the experts? Let's really map this out. But that's not what these commentators are doing. You know, one thing that I see in this is, is something that we saw in Paw Patrol, uh, in the Paw Patrol incident, I should say, um, not after watching Paw Patrol for hours and hours or anything like that. But, um, but the thing that we saw in the Paw Patrol incident was the role that journalism can sometimes play in, uh, in making things seem equivalent. What, what I mean by that is just like in the Paw Patrol incident where there was a New York Times story that had mentioned that the left had finally come for Paw Patrol. And it was a little ambiguous about how many tweets actually constituted the left coming for Paw Patrol. But a similar situation that we're, that we're looking at here, right? So Steve, some of this, the case that you've been tracking down here about there being a kind of both sidesism to the conspiracy theories around the forest fires, you know, that, that news story that kind of mentioned those things, you know, cements in the public record this idea that somehow these are equivalent rumor phenomena, right? When in fact, you know, either one doesn't really exist very much and one really exists, or that they have very different expressions that are worth paying attention to. But, uh, you know, news stories oftentimes can kind of, not, not willfully, um, but incidentally, misrepresent the contours of different kinds of misinformation events. That's that's absolutely right. And, you know, before I actually took the took the time to look into it, and I might add, it took quite a bit of time to look into it. Um, I thought it was perfectly plausible that these both rumors were going around and they were equivalent and there was sort of a rumor battle going on between the two sides. And it turns out just just not to be true. And I, I, I think uh, that's sort of a lesson for the two sidesism you're talking about. That there there might be two sides, but the two sides don't deserve equal uh, attention. Yeah, or you know, thought of a different way, or uh, or extending on that, it it takes away an opportunity to say, hey, look, this one rumor is very local and appears to be word of mouth. This other rumor appears to be very national and appears to be spreading on social media. If we're studying rumors and misinformation, we really want to be able to pay attention to the differences between something that appears to be local and word of mouth and something that is suspiciously national um, and has all kinds of expression on Twitter. And perhaps coordinated. A hundred. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, like not it either misrepresents it or, you know, takes away or there's an opportunity cost to, to representing it in that way. It, it, and the story of high volume competing rumors is a much sexier and compelling story than well, there are a lot of rumors of there's these rumors of Antifa that's, you know, this size. And then there's this very small local rumor that, you know, the Proud Boys and such are starting this. That's a much less sexy story than we have these two strong competing rumors that are battling it out in the public discourse. 
Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, if every time a human being was penalized for binary thinking, um, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. Um, but it is one of those bolt holes of thinking that it's important to kind of think beyond when we can. Steve, as you're the guest of honor and you've spent a fine amount of time with us today having a conversation about these different mis- and disinformation events surrounding these fires on the West Coast of the United States, uh, you get the last word today. Any kind of final thoughts that you want to leave folks with? Yeah, two, two things, I guess. One is that uh, I sort of fell victim, I think, to this idea that if you hear it in a news story, it must be true. And I think uh, a lot of people wouldn't go the extra go to the extra steps that I did to sort of track down uh, whether these were equivalent rumors. And when I did, I found out that they're not. So uh, we have to be careful about even in legitimate news outlets like the Associated Press, when we hear these things, uh, you know, we shouldn't take them without a, a grain of salt. Um, and I guess the second thing that strikes me about this is uh, sort of going back to the narrative issues I was talking about before. You know, I think there's this sort of grand narrative or master narrative in the United States right now that we're in a in this titanic battle between the left and right and that, uh, you know, they're fighting one another tooth and nail and pulling dirty tricks. And so as events like these wildfires unfold, uh, that's sort of a perfect substrate, you know, on, on which to hang these conspiracies and, and malign actions of, of different groups. Uh, so I think it's a bit of a, a manifestation of that sort of larger uh, social narrative movement that, that these, uh, these rumors are circulating. Yeah, what a, what a great set of thoughts to end on. Steve, thank you for joining us today and sharing with us some of your work and some of your thoughts. Hey, it was my pleasure. And uh, it was really uh, had a good time, guys. Well, we'll have to have you back sometime soon to talk about, um, you know, what we know for sure will be another misinformation event um, that I think we can all bet. Indeed. Thanks, everyone, for listening this week. Be thoughtful and be well. For questions or comments, use the email address datascience at asu.edu. And to check out more about what we're doing, try library.asu.edu slash data.